the Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter 18, Tempest Fugit, Part 2. Dustin tapped his boot against Martin's. Psst, Dad, it's time. Huh? Oh, hey, it's getting light out? Martin peered out the window with one eye open. Yep, almost morning. It's my turn to rest my eyes, Dustin whispered. <sighs> Nothing happened? Martin asked after a long yawn. Nope. He was not being as quiet as Dustin. Landers, asleep against the wall, stirred awake. Candace blinked awake, too. She had settled into a sitting position at the base of the newel post she was tied to. The gag had loosened overnight, such that she was able to wriggle her chin out of it. She stood, with some effort, to peer out of the tall window. What remained of her house was a blackened skeleton of framing. Trails of smoke twisted up through the ribs. A few small flames still licked at the remnants of the collapsed roof. Lander stood beside Martin, peering out the window. Well, so much for my plan on what to do with her, Lander said. While we were waiting to see if Quinn's men would do anything else last night, and thank God they didn't, I was trying to figure out what we should do with Candace. Do? Martin asked. Oh, yeah. We have to do something with her. Being a local quizling isn't strictly illegal, but I think there's a case to be made for accessory to several murders. At least accessory to manslaughter. But when are we going to be able to hold a trial on that? It's not my fault, Candace said. I had no idea those, well, those ruffians would actually hurt anyone. Landers ignored her. Ah, the holding cell downstairs is already full of those other two from Mill Pond, and I wouldn't think it's safe to put her in there with them. I had figured on house arrest as a solution, yeah, but now, he tipped his head toward the window, yeah, keeping her around for a trial is just more trouble than I want right now. Oh, uh, then turn her loose? Martin was joking, but in deadpan form. Kick her out of town? Hmm. Landers stroked his beard. Kind of the old-fashioned tribal banishment thing, eh? Cast her out of the village and let the wolves take care of her. Wolves? You can't just throw me out in the cold, pled Candace. Jeff, you and I have known each other for many years, she tried to smile. And you've been a thorn in my side for many years, okay? Well, give her to Quinn, Martin asked. What? Candace gasped. Tyler burst through the front doors. Where's Landers? Up here, son. Uh, why so excited? Uh, is someone coming? Tyler bounded up the flight of stairs, holding his radio high. No, sir. I was scanning for anything on any channel. I picked up that Boston station on AM. He fussed with the radio's buttons, but only static came out of the speaker. Ah, oh, shoot. I had it outside. Maybe I need to get higher. He rushed up the upper flight of stairs. It was that Boston Bob character, Tyler called down, as he continued to fuss with the radio. Music began to play. Oh, oh, yeah, this is it. 
He said that after this song, he would have news from New Hampshire. He made it sound like it was something sensational. Banal music played for a long moment. It was an elevator music version of a John Lennon tune. As promised, we've got some interesting news this morning regarding that nest of outlaws up north. First up, more news about that crazy father and son in Ohio with their Mad Max trucks. The governors of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, and Connecticut have all stated that there is no way they will get their trucks across their states. They will be arrested. Bringing aid to criminals violates Senator Culp's recent executive order. Governor Baylock wants to assure the people of the cantons that they are in no danger from that pair, adding that this stunt is probably a distraction intended to draw security forces away from intercepting the aid fleet. Mad Max trucks? asked Dustin. What's that all about? Well, you'll have to ask Judy, said Martin. First I've heard of it. Tyler shushed them both. Boston Bob continued. But that doomed aid fleet may not ever need to leave port. It sounds like the outlaws and the criminals are turning on themselves. It won't be long now before the threat of rebellion and crime from the north will eliminate itself. We have a report that in Cheshire, that source of the criminal infection, unruly mobs crazed by starvation have committed a hate crime against one of their most respected citizens, one Candace Crawford. She was brutally murdered, her few remaining supplies stolen, and her house burned to the ground. Just another example of how the enemies of peace have sunk to subhuman lows. But, Bob said with a chuckle, I have a strong feeling that karma will soon strike that capital of criminality. Mark my words, there will be more bad news coming out of Cheshire soon. Oh, well now, said Landers. She should have made the news quickly. I wonder who could have told them that she was killed. Say, maybe this means we have a reason to keep her around, said Martin. Uh, why? She's nothing but trouble, and now she's just another mouth to feed. Well, true, but she's also proof of what Quinn was really up to. Now that Bob is blowing the same horn, it's proof of what the feds are, devious power grabbers. What if we get her over to Walters and have her broadcast the truth? I can't do that, Candace objected. You saw what they did to my house? They'll kill me. Pfft, said Martin. Hey, you're already dead. Bob just said so. This is no laughing matter. Once they find out I didn't die in that house, they'll be after me. There's no way I'm going on any radios. She turned away, nose in the air. Ah, well, we'll see about that, said Landers. I like the idea, Simmons. Her little confession would be good for local morale. I wonder if Walter could broadcast wider. Have to ask him. What do you make of that last thing Bob said? asked Martin. That karma striking soon thing. Do you think he knows that Quinn has something else up his sleeve? You think he's going to send in his armored vehicles? Dustin asked. From what we saw last night, 
They got some nasty firepower. How would we stand up against that? That doesn't seem to be how he operates, said Landers. He uses proxies. Like that city gang thing or the hoodlums at Mill Pond? It looks better if it appears like regular crime takes us down. It'd be bad PR for his own men to be seen doing it. I've been thinking about that. Maybe it's not just PR, said Martin. Maybe he doesn't actually have a huge amount of men or machines. Maybe he needs proxies as manpower. What about the lake people? asked Tyler. Could be a big batch of proxy manpower over there. Hmm, hmm, mused Landers. And there's that settlement of Nutfield outcasts south of town. Candace was telling me about them. Charles came through the front doors, interrupting the discussion. Oh, there you are. Mr. Haddock said you were in here. We almost had a problem out there, he said, but I think we settled on a solution. Well, what problem? asked Landers. Yeah, the problem of what to do with the FEMA food they all hauled out of Candace's house yesterday. In the rush to get it out of her house, they just piled it up behind the parsonage. Once dawn came, everyone was arguing about how to divvy up the pile. Oh, my word. Landers shook his head. But, continued Charles, Mr. Haddock had an idea. He suggested that everyone present take one meal packet, but that the rest should be donated to the town farm. Everyone seemed to like it, I think because it meant no one else got any more. Anyhow, they want you to come out and officially sanction the idea, before they start arguing again. Hmm, what if we put Candace in the town farm too? asked Martin. She can work for her room and board like everybody else. No, protested Candace, with fear in her eyes. I can't go there. Some of them, I mean, they could all turn out to be like those other people she said. Besides, they don't have any room at the town farm. I tell you what, Martin said to Landers, how about if I take that Trevor kid to my house? That'll make room. Candace can have Trevor's luxury condo corner in the barn. That should be pretty secure from angry residents. I didn't think you had any room, said Landers. Martin could feel a rush of oops, he figured that Trevor could sleep in the little bedroom that Susan had occupied. Perhaps it was her talk of movie curses that he felt the room would remain empty, for a while at least. However, he wasn't supposed to let on that Susan was no longer in town. Candace might not be the only mole. Well, I can find room, if it'll help solve what to do with Candace. Besides, the town farm isn't too far from Walter's, easier for the broadcast. No, I won't go there, Candace protested again. You're in custody, Candace. You got no say in the matter, said Landers. Tyler, keep an eye on this prisoner while I go bless this food deal. Tyler nodded. I'd better tell Stuba about that karma threat. If Quinn is up to something, we need to be ready. Hopefully faster than we were with that group at Mill Pond, added Martin. Jen and Robert drove the buckboard into the Simmons's driveway. Martin, Carlos, Dustin, and Joni stood in the open garage door, waiting to begin the refitting. Robert unhooked Peaches and Constance from the buckboard's tongue. Look at you all, 
Jim pointed at the four. Light jackets? No gloves? You think it's summer? Just enjoying our January thaw, said Martin. Couldn't have happened at a better time. It'll make getting the skis on the buckboard much easier. Carlos and Dustin pulled the buckboard closer to the garage and propped up one side. While they're busy fitting the skis onto the wheels, Martin asked Robert, do you think we could have Peaches haul our gasifier over to Walter's? We have it all strapped onto a half a sheet of plywood, sort of like a sled. Uh, sure, said Robert. Let's take Constance, though. She's been antsy with this warmer weather. She could use a workout. Martin, Dustin, and Margaret traveled with Tin Man. They walked while the sled traveled uphill. They all rode on the sled going downhill to provide some braking effect, lest the sled go too fast and run into Constance's legs. Riding the sled was a welcome break from walking, too. Walter had his house guests chipping up fuel chips for several days. He had a good stockpile developed. The original plan had been to use Tin Man to power Walter's higher wattage transmitter in hopes of learning something about Operation Longbow. Hearing about Candace's fall from grace with the dark powers of benevolence, Walter was keen to broadcast the true story. He would need some time to make contacts to act as relays in order to reach a wider audience. The walk from Walter's to the town farm was pleasant. The sun shone warm in the deep blue sky. The snow had softened to the point of having a sticky quality, so footing felt less treacherous. The air had a sort of thick, spring-like humidity to it. The entire walk amounted to an extended debrief for Margaret of the actions inside Candace's house and the coming of the bearcats and fire. Several of the town farm residents were out enjoying the warm temperatures. Those not already occupied stripping the bark off the latest pine were simply lounging in the sun. Hey, Paul, Martin waved. Lander's here yet? Lander's? Oh, why? Oh, haven't you heard? Didn't he radio ahead and tell you all about it? Hey, you couldn't have radioed ahead. We don't have our good radio anymore. Only the little ones said Paul. Yeah, we think Adam stole it. He and Trish disappeared yesterday. No idea when. Don noticed the radio was gone in the morning. But figured that I had it. But didn't. Mrs. Webster noticed the pantry door had been jimmied between breakfast and lunch. A bunch of the ready-to-eat meal stuff was missing. Adam and Trish weren't there at lights out. Martin filled Paul in on the story of Candace and the fire. Oh, lousers! Paul stared into the distance, processing the news. Candace, oh, that's huge. Explains a lot, though. Lander said he figured she should be held here, pending a trial as accessory to murders. To make room for her, I figured I'd take Trevor with me. Candace could have Trevor's cozy corner room. Oh, that makes sense. The corner room is the most secure. I kind of hate to lose him, though, said Paul. Trevor's a good kid, really. Hard worker. Now that Adam and Trish have skipped town, Trevor could take one of the beds in the main barn, if he wants. Well, let's ask him, said Martin. I see him over there, pulling bark. Martin briefly recapped the Candace story for Trevor. He jumped at the opportunity for an upgrade. You kidding me? I don't gotta ax me twice. Okay, then, said Martin. Go get your things. 
Things? <laughs> I'm wearing them. Uh, oh. The sound of clanking caught everyone's attention. Martin pointed to the road. Oh, here they come now. One of the farmers from West Village had a big gray percheron harnessed to a low timber sled. He used it for hay rides around Christmas time. It was a good way to earn a few bucks. The city folk from Boston and Manchester thought it was oh so quaint. Now the big draft horse and sled were oh so practical. Landers and Haddock sat up front with the farmer. Candace sat in the back, like cargo. Beside her sat a pile of FEMA food packets. The FEMA food they salvaged from her house ought to help replace what Adam took, Martin said. And that's why I'm here, added Margaret. I figured Mrs. Webster could use a little help integrating these new salty things into their food plan. It might take some juggling. I guess I'll leave you to it, said Martin. I need to get back and get that buckboard properly fitted to those skis. I'll take Trevor with me now. Dustin and I will be along later, definitely before dark, Margaret said. I'll go greet our new guest and show her to her suite, said Paul. Walking single file on paths normally discourages conversation. Trevor was not discouraged. He thanked Martin over and over for a chance to move off the farm. He rambled on about his weeks at the farm, the work, the tensions, the conditions. He mused, out loud, at the coincidence that his little corner room would be filled by another person accused as an accessory, who was also presumed dead by their gang. Martin wasn't fully engaged in the listening. Trevor was prone to repeat himself, so it wasn't hard to remain socially engaged, if not fully so. Martin allowed himself to bask in the sun as they walked and enjoy the deep blue sky. He let his mind ponder the atmospheric conditions that created a distinct edge between the clear sky to the southeast and a thick shelf of clouds to the northwest. He couldn't recall seeing any clouds while traveling to Walters, but, in fairness, it would have been behind him. Walking back north, the half-blue, half-gray sky was hard to miss. Carlos and Joni ran into problems fitting the skis to the buckboard's wheels. During the test drive, the wheels were prone to break their straps and roll out of the wooden pockets when gliding over uneven snow. The restraining straps weren't strong enough. While Joni cut and bent some thicker steel, Martin suggested two straps per wheel, one in the front of the box, one at the rear. Trevor was eager to help as a human jack, lifting the buckboard a corner at a time, and he helped by talking to the horses so that they wouldn't become bored. While they fitted the new double straps, everyone became aware of a soft, roaring noise. If the outage hadn't eliminated the sound of traffic, the soft roar could be mistaken for heavy traffic on the highway. Just as Martin was about to ask Robert what he thought it might be, the treetops across the road suddenly began to bend. The howl grew. It was wind. A few moments later, the strong wind worked its way down to the ground level. Martin had to adjust his footing to brace himself against the gusts. It was a challenge to catch the flapping corners of his jacket to get them together enough to zip. 
The horses whinnied and shuffled in protest. The shelf of clouds had nearly taken over the sky from the blue. The northwest sky looked unusually dark. "'Looks like we've got some weather blowing in,' Robert shouted over the wind. He had to hold his cap on with one hand. The other hand tried to hold his coat closed. "'I'd better be getting the girls home!' Martin nodded and gave a thumbs up. It was easier than shouting. The wind had grown sharply colder. "'Oh, you're cool special effects!' shouted Andy. He pointed up the road. A wall of white rolled toward them. It consumed trees, utility poles, the Oldham's house, as it advanced. "'Everybody get inside!' Martin shouted. He waved his arms, as if herding giant chickens toward their coop. The horses and buckboard were consumed by white. The wall of snow pelted everyone as they scurried for the open garage door. The snow felt more like sandblasting grit than fluffy flakes. Once inside the garage, Martin took a quick inventory. Everyone was accounted for. The wood toolbox, however, was still in the driveway. In just those few minutes, a snowdrift had grown up behind the toolbox. "'I'd better get home while I can,' said Joni. She pulled up her hood and headed for the open door. Martin grabbed her arm. "'Yeah, I don't think that's a good idea.' "'I'll be okay. My house is just a ways up the road,' she said. "'I can get there before it gets too deep.' Well, "'Deep isn't the problem,' Martin said. "'Look out there.' You can't even see the trees between us and the road. Uh, no, it'd be too easy for you to get lost out there. But, no buts. Stay here until the storm is past. We can radio up to Gene, and he can let Steve know that you're here, safe. You can stay in the little bedroom for the night. Martin suddenly realized he had just overbooked. Oh, wait, Martin pointed to Trevor. I told you that you were in that room. No worries, man. I can bunk with my new buddy, Andy. Trevor put his arm around Andy's shoulders. Hey, a roomie would be like totally awesome, beamed Andy. Hey, we could play. Hey, did you see that snow? asked Judy. She, Anna, and Lucas came down to the garage. We did, said Martin. We're going to have to batten things down. Joni will be staying here for the night. She can have Susan's room. Trevor and Andy need to get to the shed pretty quickly. You'll need some bedding. I'm on it, said Judy, and she ran upstairs. Andy, how are you set for food and water in the shed? Andy scrunched up his face and thought. Um, I uh, got me a big pan of pine fries, uh, some beans uh, from yesterday. I was going to go down to the well when we were done playing with horses. Uh, got a half a gallon, I think. Okay, Anna, would you please get some rice, uh, maybe three cups, and about this much of the smoked fish? Martin held up his hands to denote a volume. See, see, Anna rushed up the stairs. Lucas, how much water do we have up in the kitchen? Two gray buckets, Lucas said. I filled them earlier. It's not been through the filter yet. The white bucket may be half full. Oh, that'll do. Carlos. Would you pour the white bucket water into gallon jugs? Lucas can help. Judy returned with two blankets, a towel, and a pillow. Martin was glad she got the bedding. He wouldn't have thought about the towel on the pillow. Anna rushed back into the garage. She handed Andy the food in a small bag. Carlos returned with two gallon jugs of water. 
This was all that was in the white bucket. Hey, it'll do, Martin said. Conserve, Andy. You might be in there for a while. Uh, about that, uh, I was going to cut up some more sticks uh, when I was done at the well, and, uh, Andy said sheepishly, you don't have much firewood? Martin sounded exasperated. Well, there's a lot in the barsh pile, um, out there. Andy's voice trailed off. Don't worry about it. Martin gathered up an armload of smaller logs from the woodpile they kept in the garage. You still have that hatchet, right? You didn't leave that out by the brush pile again, right? Oh, no, Mr. No, sir. It's hanging on a nail, just like you firmly suggested. Good. Okay, boys, let's get you to your quarters before it gets deeper. Andy hefted his jugs of water and bag of food. Trevor clutched his armful of bedding. Martin had an armful of firewood. They all took deep breaths, then pushed out against the stinging blast of snow. On the flat of the driveway, the snow was only an inch deeper. The snowdrift behind the toolbox was already a foot tall. Everything was evenly white. Ground, sky, left, right. It was like flying through clouds. The big hemlock between the garage and the shed was mere shades of gray amid the white. Nonetheless, it was enough of a landmark to get them to the door of the shed. After getting Trevor situated, and Andy got his little wood stove stoked up again, Martin wished them well and pushed back out into the swirling snow. He couldn't simply face the house and walk back toward it because the snow stung his face. He peeked from behind his upraised hand, but it still amounted to looking sideways as he walked. It was a bad time to have a white house. He wasn't certain if he could see the hemlock branches or not. He thought he did, but wasn't too confident. He figured he could follow his footprints back, but they had been scoured away. Using dead reckoning, he pressed ahead to where he thought the toolbox would be, so he could bring it in the garage. Even with smaller steps and occasional scramble to keep his footing, it seemed like he had walked farther than necessary. He had no bearings, no landmarks. He was lost. A wave of instinctive panic tried to rush over him, but he shook it off. He was on his own land, not the Antarctic. He would have to come upon something familiar. He kept walking. The ground began to rise in front of him. The yard beside the steps? If he was correct, following the rise to the left would bring him to the stone steps. It did. He scoffed at his instinctive panic. He followed the stone flowerbed curb to the garage wall. Let's get this door down, Martin shouted, before the garage fills up with snow. Everyone huddled around the wood stove. The wind made the house creak as it pushed on the walls. Anna had started some fish and rice soup warming on the stove. I got Mr. Murdot on the radio, said Judy. He's going to try to reach Mr. Bain and tell him his wife is staying here. He radioed back that he reached him. I also asked Mr. Murdot to contact Town Farm. Dustin and Mrs. Simmons are there. He said he hadn't been able to reach Town Farm. Neither has Walter or that Mr. Emulary on Bell Hill. I'm kind of worried. You don't think they would try to walk home in this, do you? 
It was clear that Judy needed comforting more than analysis. No, he dismissed the notion with a wave. Judy kept her worried look. But Dustin can be so stubbornly brave sometimes. True, but Margaret can be stubbornly cautious. She'll make sure that they ride it out safely. There you have it, the conclusion of Chapter 18. Just as they get Candace a new place to live, well, be confined anyway, then a big winter storm moves in. Being hungry isn't the only problem the folks of Cheshire face. Thanks for listening and for your continued support. <laughs>